Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Nicola. How are you? I'm very well. Very well. Really lovely to see you. Absolutely. So, um, you know, um, I think I saw you on some sort of interesting um, blogs on LinkedIn. <clears throat> For some reason, I, 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 I tend to attract quite a few coaches. I don't know why. Mm. Um, what was it that sort of really attracted you to this, you know, whole notion of coaching and, and uh, mentoring? Um, I mean, I was a GP for quite a long time and I had some coaching myself. And um, so, so what happened there was that I did the classic GP thing of falling and injuring my back. But because I could still feel my feet, I was just like, oh, I'll be fine. And I didn't go to any. And then I found myself in agony weeks later you know still struggling with this back injury and it was it was just um, a moment in my career where I really needed to stop and take notice of everything that was was happening in my life I was you know I was juggling too many things young children husband traveling abroad working hard as a GP um, and I had some coaching and what really interested me about being coached was how quickly you can come up with fresh thinking, how quickly you can transform your perspective on something. And I think if I hadn't experienced coaching before I even thought about becoming a coach, I wouldn't have done it. But having that, that lived experience myself of going, wow, that was quick, <laughs> that was easy, um, was, was really powerful for me. And, and funnily enough, that that was easy, I think is really interesting because um, as a medic and, you know, we, we strive, we try so hard, we studied for years, you know, I, I always wanted to be the best at everything that I was doing. And um, the idea that something could be quick and easy, but still really powerful and profound was quite new for me. Um, I, it was a mindset shift that made me think, oh, okay, things can be, things can be easy and still be valid. So, so it was powerful and it was quick. Was this coaching, was, was this something at the back of your mind or was it kind of forced upon you to, ha to have coaching session? I mean, why coaching? I know it was voluntary. Right, yeah, no, right. no, I, I sorted it out. And why did I seek it out? I had been part of a leadership um, training um, through the King's Fund and I had met some mentor coaches through that training and um, so when I found myself in this, you know, like that feeling that, look, I'm a, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I've thought this through and, I'm, and I still feel stuck. And I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't feel like I needed to spend months having counselling. I just needed someone to help me to do some better thinking, to, to look at the situation differently. So I, I contacted one of the mentors from the King's Fund and she recommended a coach for me. So it was completely me. And I probably 
that's a reflection of the fact that I'm somebody who's been interested in looking at other ways of doing things throughout my career. It's not it's not particularly surprising for me to seek something out like that. Um, but yeah, it was really it was a real moment of going, wow, I you know I wish I'd been taught how to do this as a as a GP, um, and and it was yeah it was powerful. I mean, do you think those leadership courses are useful um, for medics? You know, at all stages in their careers. Well, the, the course, the, the training that we had was actually funded by Macmillan. It was for um, Macmillan GPs. So it was helping us to move more into a leadership role. I have, I have a huge amount of respect for the King's Fund. And actually, the, the, this programme that they put us through was brilliant. For me, why it was brilliant was that it was an opportunity to step out and to reflect and to challenge yourself and think about what is my learning style? What is my, you know, natural impulse? And when we worked through a challenge, realizing, oh, you know, other people had a better way of tackling that than me and, and learning from them. So being in that kind of group setting, I think as doctors, we study all the time and we're you know, maybe quite self-critical and we work hard. But certainly as a GP, I, I felt quite isolated as a GP in a way because you're just head down seeing patients all day long and having that opportunity to step out and yeah learn learn just for the sake of learning um and and coming away feeling like I, actually I had some new skills and something I could do I really loved it I absolutely loved it I mean were you a single practice GP at the time or were you part of a no um, yeah. <laughs> you can feel yeah. it it sounds like... as though yeah I mean it sounds as though you were sort of no, sadly, this is um, the experience for lots of GPs that you can be. It's like, you know, how lonely can you feel it within a relationship, within a marriage even, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I was in a building full of other doctors and we never saw each other. Uh, it was just relentless. And, yeah, we would come together for a meeting once a week in the practice. Um, the, the agenda was always completely overstuffed. It was the most stressful meeting every week because it was you know we, we didn't manage our meetings that well so we were always trying to do too much in that meeting and rushing through the agenda um so yeah I I, I like working with people I'm interested in people and I like learning and I, I I guess I was seeking out opportunities for that which is partly why I used to do a day a week for Macmillan and partly why I took the opportunity to do that training as well where, 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 where did that interest come from, you know, being interested in Macmillan work? It's a really good question. I, I think maybe it's my generation as a GP. Cancer has felt like the challenge of our time. And, um, and also my interest in looking at things holistically has been career long. That's been right since medical school. I've been you know, I, I this is going to sound really ridiculous, but I'm going to just say, it, you know, I had a somebody at medical school who, who was an elderly care physician. And when we would take learning to take a history, do you remember like when you're, you're training, he um, he stopped us because we were, you know, re reeling off our medical histories about this elderly lady, blah, blah, blah. And he, he stopped and he said, did you think to ask who was going to feed her cat? And we were like, what? And he he said, well, you know, if this lady is going to be just totally worried about her cat the whole time she's in hospital, that's actually a significant question. It's important to remember the whole person. 
not just the pneumonia in front of you or the broken hip in front of you. And and I I was really inspired by this 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 guy and um and I guess thinking about cancer as a GP um you know you're you're a risk assessor you're you're trying to make an early diagnosis you're trying to advocate for your patients and make sure they get onto the right pathway and get the right treatment but what you also see is the wider impact on the family you're not just dealing with one patient and the thing that really interested me in working for Macmillan was the opportunity to um, influence um, conversations around communication, around thinking of this person not just as another person on the conveyor belt who happens to have cancer, but that, that actually when you're managing something like cancer, and this goes for lots of other diseases, but it was just what I happened to be focusing on, you're you can't isolate, you can't just think about the medical diagnosis and the medication because you won't, you won't do a good job. And I, I'm very interested in that, that whole person who is going home and might be worrying about their finances, might be worrying about their body image, their sexuality, their relationship, their place in society, dying. <laughs> those, are, those are all really big, difficult conversations. And, and those are the things that interest me, you know, on top of medicine, really. Yeah, yeah, and and um, did you get that kind of satisfaction of of holistic uh, understanding when when you're at medical school? Because uh, I I certainly didn't. You know, I mean, I went <laughs> in, I went in thinking about healing, and I sort of came out carrying a BNF, and and that was it, really. Yeah, but, I think know, I had you know a similar the, experience. Uh, what, what was it? The Oxford Handbook, basically. That was it. Yeah, weighing down our pockets and our white coats. <laughs> Yes, I think, I mean, I think I'm not critical of medical education per se, because I think there's a huge amount to teach people in medical school. And inevitably, it gets distilled down into these component parts. But yeah, I I called it the sausage factory, because I went in full of excitement and ideas about helping and, you know, the classic cliche of helping people and, but also about health and and I, I wanted to develop as a person. And actually, I, I felt like I didn't. I felt the opposite. I felt like I was distilled down into somebody who could churn out the, the facts and like who could be a risk assessor and take a history and prescribe. Um, but I was yearning that personal development, that, you know, how to be a more evolved person dealing with other people. You know, that I was really... I was I really missed that I didn't get any of that at medical school and and when did you kind of get a glimpse of that in in your career was it after you actually left sort of GP land or did you get glimpses of it I mean you know you mentioned your um uh, medical consultant who kind of gave you glimpses yeah. of yeah so I think you probably had the same thing there are people that stand out for you during your career mm. that that give you um, glimpses. No, I think, I mean, even as a medical student, my elective, I um, completely broke the mold and I went to New York and did, uh, I learned how to do acupuncture with crack addicts in the Bronx. And um, I was definitely pushing back against <laughs> the medical model by doing that. That was me kind of going, no, no, hang on, there's, there's other stuff I want to learn here. How did um, you organise that? And I said, I survived to tell the tale. I read about um, the consultant, his name's Michael Smith, who ran the clinic. 
uh, in a newspaper. And I sent I sent a letter to Michael Smith, uh, the Bronx, and it got to him. And he wrote back to me. I know it's astonishing. Wow. <laughs> you know, the good old when days. When you're young, huh? you don't care. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 um, so you sent yeah. off a letter, you know. Yeah, and literally. he said, "Come and come and train with me. Come and learn how to do it." He was amazing. Um, so, so this is on a paper. This is a newspaper that you read it. Yes, it wasn't even a, an academic thing. It wow. was just in like I don't know my parents' weekend newspaper or something. It was just literally in the paper, right? and I I sent off a letter, not even expecting necessarily to get a reply. And then when I heard back from him, I built up my elective around that. So I had, I think I was training, I can't remember how many weeks he said to train with him in New York. But um, in addition to that, I went off and visited some other places in the United States. Well, as there, so the, the head of the American Holistic um, Association, um, uh, I contacted him and I went and stayed on his ranch in california and oh, wow. uh, learned from him for a couple of weeks um yeah, i did some crazy things it was completely unorthodox and then uh, amazingly what was the craziest thing medical school what was the crazy well thing? i i think <laughs> i think doing acupuncture with crack addicts is quite crazy because the the um the clinic was positioned right next door to where people were buying their drugs wow. and they'd worked out their opening hours so that when the the, the guys stopped selling next door, the clinic would open. And so the, the punters would turn up um, really uh, desperate for another hit. So the come down from crack is very rapid, which is what makes it so addictive. So the language and the aggression that they would spill it through the front door kind of, I can't even say what they were saying, but, you know, FF, this, 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 you know, like really and sweating and eyes bulging like they were raging as they would come in and we were taught how to just get one needle into their ear and they would just fall asleep and we were using six acupuncture points um in just in their ears and they would fall asleep and after 40 minutes you just gently wake them up and they say thank you so much mom you've been so kind and like really really lovely graceful person returned and then they would leave and then and, you know it was completely wild to experience acupuncture in those kind of circumstances it was just amazing oh, I was amazing. probably a little bit unsafe <laughs> my parents didn't know much about what was going on but yeah completely astonishing wow wow that's that's um I've never heard of that 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 sounds absolutely uh mind-boggling it was phenomenal it was phenomenal and obviously you know, I think I don't know what's happened in terms of research and what they can show about how, you know, in terms of getting people off the drugs long term. I think, you know, there's a lot to addiction that's more than just acupuncture. But I just I, it really opened my eyes to the fact that we there's a lot more to medicine than the things that we teach in the Western biomedical model. Um, yeah. And it was very, very interesting. And well, also, you know, I learned to kind of handle handle myself in that situation. Well, absolutely. That's that's you know, I mean, that's the main thing, really. is sort of seeing these really difficult situations and being able to to continue functioning in a in a, in a reasonable manner. Yeah. Um, and also yeah. to feel compassion. Actually, you know, I mm. felt these people were lovely, um, but the drug was making them really violent and and um, volatile. But and like you could see that transition 
so visibly was very, very interesting. And, you know, I mean, as you said, it's sort of, you know, the whole um, holistic environment, so to speak, you know, that they know that there is a sort of a, a safe space or a safe environment or a safe house that they can go to. And they know that they're, they're going to be cared for during these, you know, really horrible times for them. Mm, yeah, it was it was interesting. And yes, yeah, since then, I guess it's been a theme. Um, as I said, as I've said before, I think that I I um, did some work at Bristol University. There was quite a lot of really enthusiastic um, uh, lecturers who were interested in what what they what they named whole person care at Bristol University. So I've had other support and people around me during my career who were also interested in thinking outside the box and helping medical students to think in that way as well. So. I guess it's continued. It's been a theme through my career, but I'll be honest with you, as the longer my career has gone on, the harder it's been to be a holistic GP. Um, and that's the thing that's, that makes me really sad, actually, is that it has changed and it's much, much harder to, to manage people in that way, to be that, you know, I always used to say what, what flavour of doctor do I need to be for this person? You know, when you're listening to someone, being able to read, do they, you know, do they, do they need reassurance? Are they, do, they need, do they need someone to investigate this? Do they need, you know, what are they actually looking for? To be able to listen and to be able to adapt who you are as a doctor to what's actually going to be helpful to that person in front of you gets less and less easy when you don't know your patients you're just doctor doctor in room eight you know <laughs> bums on seats um you know it's become very anonymous and and very much more difficult and obviously I haven't been being a GP during the pandemic but I think it's got even more difficult since then but that made me sad I really I loved being a community GP part of a local community and seeing the context in which people um you know that that people's health is is it's not isolated. It's not just in the clinic. You know their health is part of where they're living and all of those things as well. So it's got harder. Do you think we'll ever go back to that kind of um, uh, style of of healthcare? I think it will come down to whether the public are prepared to fight for that. Actually, mm. you know, I think that it's very political and. At the moment, we've got overwhelming numbers of patients in an underfunded service. And, you know, it's it's incredibly difficult to provide a safe service to under that kind of pressure. And so inevitably, when things are like that, you end up firefighting. And um, in some ways, it becomes a very inefficient service because you can't say to someone, you know, let's sit on your symptoms for a couple of days then I'll see you again in two days and see whether or not we need to investigate further you end up using more resources because you're under so much time pressure all of the time and that's highly problematic and I think unless the public and we're all the public you know unless all of us are prepared to say actually we want a really um, comprehensive primary care as part of the system and we value that I don't I don't think it will come back um, I, don't, I think I'm scared that most people are, don't realise what they're losing. We may have already lost. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult. It's a very difficult time. Um, 
and difficult decisions are having to be made because of resources, you know, a lack of resources. Um, and the more GPs leave because they're disillusioned or they feel blamed for something that's not even of their own making or, you know, the, the whole moral injury of trying to do a good job and it's just impossible. The more people leave, the more difficult that's going to get, I think. I mean, we'll come back to that. Um, uh, um, in terms of your elective in, in California, what was what was going on there? What was the um, what was happening there? So for me, what was really important about um, going to meet with this guy, uh, his name was Emmett, uh, Emmett Loomis. Had a really unusual name. I might have misremembered his first name, but he was quite close to retirement, and. For me, it was about seeking out someone else who was a conventionally trained medic who had carved their own path and, and talked about holistic healthcare. I guess I needed some role models and I needed to believe that I could be me in the system that I'd trained to be in, that I could flourish in some way. And I, I was really, I guess I was really seeking role models. And he was um you know, he was a very interesting guy. He he trained in psychotherapy as well. His wife was an acupuncturist. Um, he he wanted to talk about philosophy and you know the work, the world, and everything. I didn't learn you know specific medical things from him, but I guess for me it was um, I was looking for something at that stage of my career. I was already really quite unsure about what I was being trained to be. I think. So I was desperately kind of looking. Uh, and I mean, I, I'll be honest, in terms of my career, I, you know, I think I spent a lot, because you're quite young when you train in medical school, I, I think I spent a lot of my earlier career thinking, oh, it's just me. And I'm, I obviously don't fit, you know, there's something wrong with me that I don't quite fit with being able to be comfortable with this system. And I think as my life's gone on, I felt less and less like it's just me particularly as now I'm coaching a lot of doctors who are saying the same things that I was feeling. Um, but back then, yeah, I was definitely looking for some kind of affirmation that I wasn't really silly, you know, to, to be thinking in that way. <laughs> was that because you wanted to sort of read widely and, and you know, do different things? Uh, was it too constricting, you know, having that biomedical model? Was that the reason? Or yes, was it was. Too, yes, it was. It was too constricting because honestly, I didn't feel that it was the whole story. Mm -hmm. Just in in uh, my instinct. So, um, for example, um, every time I've you know got sick, even when I hurt, hurt my back, I always I've always been able to see some kind of um, you know. There's the mind body thing. You know, when I entered my bag, I was cleaning the windows with tonsillitis before my one of my relatives came to visit. So what was that symptomatic of? That was just symptomatic of somebody who was doing too much. Like, you know, why didn't I get someone else to clean the windows? <laughs> I had tonsillitis. Why was I not in bed? So, yes, I injured my back. And you could say that's a purely, you know, mechanical injury, except I knew deep down that I there was a lesson in there. You know, and you, it's not about self-blame, but it's about insight. And, um, yeah, 
you know, I don't know. I think that there are so many things like um, grief um, or um, disconnection that impact our our bodies in ways that we don't we, we store tension in our muscles in patterns. I'm really fascinated by. Yeah, you can't always see a, a, a connection, but quite often you can you can see. You know, someone say I've got this terrible pain in my shoulder and they start talking about their work and you see their shoulder going up as they mention their boss, you know, and you're like, okay, so there might be just some little interesting pattern in there. I guess that's that's the medicine I've always seen. Um, And possibly if I'd have been born in a different century, I would have been branded a witch or something. But, you know, I I'm really fascinated by the human body. I'm really fascinated by the mind and the things we even do to ourselves not not consciously um and i guess what i learned at medical school didn't answer any of those questions for me yeah i mean it was it was too much anyway i mean you know there was so much um you know i guess pointless information we were learning just 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 to pass the exams it, it was it was as if just that that we had to get over big hurdles and that was it yeah. it was like can you get over this hurdle well yeah. done get over this hurdle now and it's like just constant hurdle jumping yeah um, yeah you know, rather than sort of learning an art or learning an apprenticeship. And, and, and unfortunately, I kind of see that in specialist training as well. It's sort of just hurdles rather than sort of mentorship and apprenticeship learning. Yeah, absolutely. I, I yeah, you know, what I was seeking was wisdom. <laughs> I wasn't getting it. I was just learning facts. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, wisdom's this weird thing. I mean, and it takes time and yes. unfortunately you know we don't have time in this world you know everything has to be really quick um yeah. so it's weird i mean it weird you know it's weird how and i'm sure you know the chap that you saw in um in california i'm sure he had lots of time on his hands yeah he did he had lots of he was he was retiring you know but he he was a trailblazer as well which was wow. you know interesting for me so what i was really you know, curious about this. If I was training as a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, a psychotherapist, we would have supervision. We would have training in how to process difficult emotions. And that was completely missing from either the conversations in medical school or our training. And and I think maybe, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Maybe when you're a medical student, you you're not you're not ready you know, that, that you, you can't imagine it being difficult. But I, I felt certainly during my training that there were enough experiences, awful experiences that I had, even as a medical student, that I would have welcomed that conversation to have started in medical school and continued as I was training. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think first of all, it's, it's that time aspect where we have to get so much done in a short space of time. Um, a lot of the stuff that we were kind of doing was irrelevant, really, um, you know, all the different dosages and all the different uh, anatomical places. I mean, I think that's it's unnecessary. I think it was just like um, uh, gateways into the next difficult task that, that you had to overcome. Certainly, I mean, in terms of, you know, psychotherapy and, and counseling, you know, you have a mentorship there you have an apprenticeship there mm. um, and, and there's a constant dialogue. And then there isn't that sort of, you know, there isn't that much of a hierarchy there as well. 
Mm. Uh, whereas the hierarchy is much more evident, um, you know, in the traditional biomedical model, um, you know, w- which gets the, the ego involved, plus all these difficult issues and difficult emotions. Um, it's just pushed away. Whereas in, you know, in the psychological world, you know, that's what, you know, that's the main thing, you know, it's all these difficult yeah. um, uh, psychological aspects. Um, and in a so, way, the biomedical model, it, it doesn't, is not interested in the psychological aspects for our patients. Yeah. And similarly, not for ourselves. And and I just think that's, it's such a, I, I know not every I mean, I mean, hope that this changes. Me. I mean, I hope that this changes because, I mean, uh, you know, having gone in, gone into the psychological world, you know, it's essentially paramount. Yeah, uh, this this Seems should really come first. To me. Yeah, it's, it's it sort of should really come first, and and sort of the body follows. Um, yeah, and that's. I mean, I'm curious of... about how you ended up as an ophthalmologist and and a psychotherapist. Yeah, I mean, I've always been. You interested... had an interest. Yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in the sort of, you know, the unseen world, so to speak, you know, the metaphysical mm-hmm. world. I've always been interested in that. And, um, you know, I come from a very religious family anyway. So, you know, there's always this um, conversation about God and the numinous and, you know, the hereafter, you know, which mm-hmm. which makes you look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, but in the kind of the real world, you're kind of pushed towards the material world um, because yes. that's what's considered to be a success and you know coming from middle eastern family you know you're you're essentially judged by your material uh success um mm. so you know coming from an academic family you're kind of you're in both worlds both the immaterial religious world or the sacred world or the um the unseen world and also the sort of the material uh thing and, you know, the biggest specialties in the material medical world is sort of surgical specialties, I guess. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's where you make the most money. But I wasn't happy there at all. <clears throat> yeah. You know, that didn't really talk to me. You know, what really talked to me is sort of going beyond beyond the physical world because, mm. you know, and I find my kind of slot in that sort of unconscious world because, you know, you can speak in a, in a certain degree of scientific, you know, nomenclature mm. <laughs> you know so that's that's why i so yeah i've always been interested i had to do what what my culture you know and and what my society told me to do which is become successful materialistically but it doesn't fulfill me um, yeah and that's why i went back to kind of you know the woo-woo world um, <laughs> You know, the sort of, you know, the witch word, you know, witches and wizards and sort of all that kind of fantasy stuff um, yeah. that goes on in the head. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's, just, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And, you, you know, know what, going what back drives to, us in. you know, I mean, go, go, going back to our point is that, you know, a, a, a lot of our medical consultation is a sort of a psychological counselling mm. therapy session. You know, yeah. You know. Yeah. Or, or or slash coaching you know if that's the flavor that you like yeah exactly um, you know it is well, quite... and, and it's also it's also about seeing the um the unseen and the unspoken yeah. um and and that's that's actually what i enjoyed the most about being a doctor was the ability to to hear the history but also to ask the right question that revealed what wasn't being said um that was always 
the nugget that I was interested in was, you know, what was really going on. Um, and in an emergency situation, you, you know, you, you get straight on with it. But most, certainly in primary care, most situations are not emergency situations. And you're, you're having an interaction with someone's life and you're thinking, why now? You know, what's brought you here today? What other factors are going on for you? What's the unspoken story that surrounds this presentation? Um, and yeah, that's what I find really interesting. But I had to find my own way to process all the discomfort of dealing with other humans because it's not it's not easy seeing people in distress. It's not easy seeing people dying or you know dropping down on the floor, having heart attack or whatever. It's I didn't find any of that stuff very easy at all. How did you sort of? I mean, you know, I mean, it's not a sort of uh, you know, the end product, but I mean, how 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 did you find yourself? being able to cope with these things and being better at it? So initially, I think I did a lot of disconnecting, actually. I think I, I was very professional. I, I uh, kept buying more medical textbooks and learning as much as I could. I think I went down a route that a lot of people go down, which is the more I know, the kind of safer I'll feel. Um, and that served me for a number of years. But ultimately, I... Actually, I needed to learn, and this is kind of what led me to more the work I'm doing now. I needed to learn how to, to um, relate to and regulate my internal responses to things. Um, so as a, you know, as a child, I was told I was too sensitive. And, you know, as a medic, some medics would probably have said I was just too sensitive. But I needed to turn that into actually what makes me really good at what I do and to find a way to manage it. Um, and one of my fears as a GP was that, you know, was my only option to shut off the empathy in order to avoid burnout, you know, or if I stayed being that empathetic, you know, people would refer to me as the compassionate doctor, you know, <laughs> if I stayed that way, would I ultimately just kind of burn up and end up the sort of husk of a person that didn't have anything left to give? And that was the big question of my career was what was, what were my options? Um, and that's what's led me to what I'm doing now, really, is actually understanding how to manage being a warm, compassionate, sensitive being and, and also being able to look after myself at the same time. Isn't that difficult, though? Isn't that sort of a difficult... I thought it was. I, I thought yeah. it was. I thought it was impossible. But, but that's where um, understanding the physiology of self-compassion really helped me. So we think we know what self-compassion is, or it's just being nice to yourself. But I needed to understand that empathy and compassion come from different places in the brain, and you can train yourself to be compassionate to yourself and to other people, and to not just throw the empathy gates open and drain yourself in the process. And so that was a really big lesson for me, and I, and I kind of wish I'd learned it a bit earlier in my career. <laughs> Would have been really helpful <laughs> but could, could you tell us more about the difference and you know what you mean by the physiological differences between the two yeah so i'm not a uh, you know a neuroscientist but what the research has shown is that when that humans naturally feel the suffering with other 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 beings so if if you're watching a film of someone in distress or you're with a patient who's distressed if you were to scan your brain the same part of your brain lights up 
as the person who's distressed. We actually feel with, and that's empathy. And the problem with empathy and the reason the medics go around saying we've got to build a wall is because if you just keep feeling all the time, it's, it's a route to burnout. It's just too exhausting. Compassion is actually arises from a different part of the brain. It's training yourself to be able to relate to and turn towards suffering with the intention of being supportive, but not taking it all on as your own. And so the, the physiology of that is learning to notice what's, what, what's happening in, your, in yourself so that you don't go into that threat response that's like, ah, I'm, 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 you know, I'm just feeling with, that you can manage your own internal processes through your breath, uh, through managing, re, you know, training your inner critic to be something that's more supportive. And also through your mindset, through your intention. So one of the things I had to let go of as a, as a doctor when I was really learning about this stuff was the idea that I had to be the solution. You know, we become fixers. As particularly GPs, we see someone every 10 minutes and we haven't got much time. So it's just like, you know, here's your answer. Here's your answer. Here's your answer. We become habitual fixers over time uh, which is not great for holistic care but it's just you know it's what naturally happens to us and it's slightly addictive being a fixer um but what I learned is that I had to just take a step to understand that I was not the cause of that person's struggle and that it wasn't entirely within my gift to end that struggle in the sense that I might prescribe something for somebody but they might not take it I might offer someone some options. They might choose to take none of them. You know, I might refer someone to the hospital thinking that certain thing might happen that it might not happen. There might not be the funding or the surgeon might decide that a different course of action is better. So separating that feeling that I, as the doctor, was the solution, just taking a step back from that was really helpful. It really released some of that emotional stress that you feel when you're trying to help, you're trying to make things be okay, which is, which is a sort of emotional state that you can get into when you've been being GP for a long time. You know, it's sort of like banging your head against a brick wall, trying to help people. Um, and so, yeah, so learning self-compassion is not as simple as just being nice to yourself. It's actually about, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of managing yourself, and it's a way of training your yourself to use your physiology differently and be more less reactive and more in that creative state or in that kind of I can see the difficulty I can relate to the fact this is hard for this person and I'm and I'll see what I can do to help yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's 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 quite difficult being in that state of ambiguity and and um I mean in my case you know, you're expected to have all the answers. But when I sort of give them that sense mm-hmm. that there is this ambiguity here and that there is this, um, yeah, uncertainty, but this uncertainty is not a bad uncertainty. It's actually um, um, a welcoming uncertainty. You know, it's sort of, well, I mean, it, it, it gives them honesty and I think that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, there are certain things that are straightforward, but you know, there's a lot of complicated things out there. And I think giving them that, that, that reassurance that it is ambiguous, but it's, um, but it's an okay, you know, ambiguity, which is totally not what modern medicine's about. You know? Exactly. It's not what people are expecting to hear, is it? And you can still be compassionate whilst sharing that ambiguity. Yeah. 
you know, you can say that, you know, it's, it's hard not to be able to give you a clear answer. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's having so, that sort of dialogue, isn't it? I mean, it's having that honest dialogue. And I think it's, it's, it's sort of difficult in this, um, you know, in this day and age of, of um, quick cut, quick diagnosis, quick treatment done yeah. in one minute. Um, well, it's true. I suppose for me, the, when I was when, when I refer to this sort of these processes, for me, I needed to practice a lot of this on the inside. This was less outward than inward. Mm. Um, so it was challenging some of my own mindset. And, um, and, and in a sense, really, it's about learning to self-soothe. You know, one of the things that we do when we're striving and we're, you know, trying to be doctors and, and is that we stuff down our emotions and we don't validate them. We, we're kind of like, you know, very, very good in, in you know, just at, at setting our feelings aside and dealing with the job in hand. That's kind of almost central to what we're trained to do. But the long-term consequence of, of that is it become very disconnected from your own emotions. You know, a lot of, I, I certainly remember feeling this and a lot of doctors will say this is that I don't actually really know what I feel anymore. Um, and so part of learning to manage myself differently was about having the courage to reconnect with some of my feelings, but to manage them in a different way. So to actually be thinking about um, validating, you know, when someone's shouting at me in clinic, actually acknowledging to myself, this is hard for me. It's obviously hard for them too, otherwise they wouldn't be shouting. You know, just little tiny changes like that instead of just expecting myself to be okay and be like a robot, actually beginning to validate that internal experience. For me, it was transformative. Now, maybe I was, you know, very not compassionate to myself beforehand. Maybe I noticed a big difference because I really needed this stuff. But a lot of people I talked to have said, you know, yeah, that's not in their vocabulary to, to manage themselves in that way. And I think it would be helpful for doctors if we were, shown how to do it and and um you've decided to you know essentially stop practicing which which is a massive decision um, mm, it was huge <laughs> yeah yeah what uh, i mean the burnout led to that i'd imagine yeah it did and, and yes i think i when i reached burnout one of the biggest um thoughts was i could take some time off but nothing would have changed when i go back so, so so I need to change something in me, something I need to do something different here. Um, I, I kept the door open for a while to the idea of returning. Um, but I started to enjoy what I'm doing now so much and be so busy with it and also see the fact that I can actually help other doctors who are practicing. I don't just work with doctors, but I have a number of clients who are who are doctors. And through the pandemic, I've been doing a lot of work with trusts helping leaders to understand the um, compassionate leadership how to use some of these skills to help themselves and to coach their teams um but so i'm encouraging still... i mean are you encouraging other doctors to leave the profession i mean from this kind no of... no okay, okay. <laughs> no i mean, so, I, I, mean you know... I think we all desperately need doctors i think if we could help people to um, look, value themselves look, look after themselves no but i mean so what i mean is that you know 
some people realize that it's not their profession i mean you know whether, oh, sure. whether we have a you know medical crisis or not i mean you know that's yeah. irrelevant really um, yeah yeah oh i mean some of my clients they want to leave yeah. um as a coach you're very much led by your clients so yeah. I, you know i i don't want people to copy what i've done i would rather we kept as many doctors as possible um but i mean but you if know I can in help your people... view i mean in any view do you see that kind of trend happening a bit more than before i mean, I mean it's difficult to tell of of obviously um because... uh, the statistics show that actually we are losing uh doctors at a, at a certainly mm. from primary care at a much faster rate yeah it's mm. it's very sad mm. i guess the system is changing you know um you know the way you know the whole medical model is sort of happening it's it's all fast food medicine i guess well, Claire Gerarda wrote a very interesting um, article about this recently, about her, her realising how much the job had changed. When she was doing her last um, out-of-hours shift, I think, um, she wrote a lovely article I saw recently. And I totally agree with her that, you know, that it's changed beyond recognition in primary care. And I'm sure, certainly talking to consultants and other doctors in trust, I think many of us feel that our jobs have changed an, an awful lot, not just because of the pandemic, um so we yeah we really need to take care of our of our medical staff um not just doctors you know across across all the um aspects of healthcare i mean if you were sort of to change three things in the current you know situation um what would be the sort of the three top things that that come to your mind i mean the first thing from a primary care point of view is i I have a big question around um, workforce planning because there's such a there's a, such a culture of an open door in primary care that you see as many patients as are needed in a day that it doesn't. My logical brain says, how on earth are we doing workforce planning for primary care? <laughs> it's just crazy as far as I can see. So I think something really needs to change there about how we think about primary care and how we plan a workforce and we actually recruit a workforce so that we can keep some really, you know, joined up primary care. It's a huge part of good healthcare is community and, and primary care. So workforce planning is uh, is a major problem. There's, you know, I can talk about compassionate leadership and all of those things, but actually if we don't have enough resources and staff, it's awful for the staff that are, that are trying to do the job at the moment. So that's absolutely number one for me. The second thing, I think we really need to challenge the toxic work culture of the NHS. And we, we really need to help to transform that culture away from bullying and ego centres working and towards compassionate leadership. I think it's so important for the survival of the NHS and to keep high quality staff uh, who you know are actually feel valued and can be creative and come up with good ideas and at the moment we've got a very top-down structure that I think stifles the potential of the staff in the NHS I'm not just talking about doctors it's you know all staff in the NHS they're highly motivated but we're not really tapping into their potential um, and then I guess the third thing would have to be from me that I would love right from the word go that that people who are trained training in healthcare are shown how to manage themselves to deal with their internal processes so they, so they can better serve um, patients. Because I think if we're struggling on the inside, we can't do good healthcare. If we can help people to manage the difficult feelings that, that arise when we're dealing 
with the public, uh, I think we would be so much better as healthcare professionals. So there you go. They were off the top of my head. I haven't prepared that, but they came through pretty loud and clear for me. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And and you know, we like to finish on this question, or you know, which I really enjoy. Um, what would you tell your um, yourself, your Nicola self, um, uh, the eighteen-year-old, or the seventeen-year-old, or, or or the nineteen-year-old that's about to start medical school? What would your three top tips be to her? Wow, the, the biggest thing would be to trust your inner voice and don't try and do it all on your own. So connect with other people who inspire you and uh, and let 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 yourself be supported and connected with other people. And the and the third thing, I guess, is number one thing to learn coming into medicine is about being a team player. So, you know, you're not an individual in this huge, huge machinery. Be part of a team. Yeah, I wish I'd been told all of those things. <laughs> yeah, you know, it would have made our life a lot, a lot easier. Uh, thank you so much and um, hope to see you um, in the flesh soon. Thank you. It's lovely to chat to you and uh, yeah, hope to see you again soon.